This is advertising content. Aloha, here talking pictures with Paul Booth. We want to thank you and let you know that all October episodes are brought to you by the party game Get Crude. Get Crude is get your crew together. You're the producer. You need an actor and a director. You draw cards. You got to make sure that there's not flash floods. Maybe your sets will be destroyed. Maybe you'll get seasick. Heck, there could even be a writer's strike. Man, do we know all the stuff that goes crazy in the film business. This game is for ages 13 and above. Best with three to eight players. For all you want to know about the game, getcrude.com go to g-e-t-c-r-e-w-d.com that's right paul you can buy the board game get crude at getcrude.com today now back to our podcast talking pictures with paul booth and that's what i call advertising content You're now listening to the Talking Pictures Podcast, broadcasting from sunny Orange County, California. Filmmaker, journalist, and film historian, Paul Booth. Aloha. Welcome to Talking Pictures with Paul Booth. So happy to be here today. This is my zone. This is what I love to do. But today we're here with Mr. Clay Griffith. He's a production designer. We're going to get into some of his films that he's done. Almost Famous, uh, We Bought a Zoo, the television show Roadies, which is now on Hulu. Uh, Dolomite is my name. Uh, so many things. Radio, domestic disturbance, and then has set decorator Seven, uh, Sleepless in Seattle, Jerry Maguire. First of all, thank you so much for doing this today. My pleasure, Paul. Really appreciate it, especially since we've been working on this. And gosh, you're on a shoot right now. <laughs> and uh, that's really cool. I, I, I really admire guests when they do that. And then also, too, just that you've kept your word to do this as we've worked on putting it together. So I really appreciate that. Uh, absolutely. My pleasure to do. I see that you kind of started out uh, in the James L. Brooks camp. I mean, broadcast news and then say anything. So what would you like to say about that? That's actually when I came to California uh, for the first time. I, I had already done two films. Um, the first film was Jonathan Demme's Something Wild. And I was an assistant in the art department. And I had just uh, left a job on Madison Avenue working for a commercial photographer. Uh, the guy worked me to the bone, paid me nothing for maybe $250 for two weeks. And my sister called me, uh, Melanie Griffith, and said, do you want to work on a movie? I said, anything but this. I, I studied black and white fine art photography in college. I, that was what I was going to do. But at Madison Avenue killed me, uh, sort of extinguished that flame. So I... I took a job as a PA or an art department PA and drove down to Tallahassee, Florida overnight and walked into the art department the next morning. And as Tom Petty says, once the ghost was in me for that, it was in me forever. I just, I fell in love with movies. I love it. The ghost is in you. Yeah. Once the ghost gets in you, it never leaves. Uh, but you know, sitting with Jonathan Demi and watching him direct and, uh, just, I've, I learned what an art department did, and I just—I really never looked back after that. I was full-on, pure Stoke movie making from that point on. Uh, oh, that's fantastic! Yeah, it was—it was, it was just—it was an incredible experience. Um, I went back to New York and got a job on Dirty Dancing, uh, sort oh. of as a set dresser, 
And because we didn't have a decorator on the film. And once we finished the movie and I went to the uh, screening, the production designer had given me the set decorator's credit. It was a non-union film at the time. So that kind of launched my career right there. I became a set decorator after that. Uh, unfortunately, I went back to New York and didn't work for almost six months. And I was just learning that, oh, you have to actually go out and find a job each time. <laughs> it's a gig. So uh, I, I was starving to death and eating like, you know, one piece of pizza every two days. And a friend of mine who was the art director on uh, Dirty Dancing, Stephen Lineweaver, called me and said, I'm going to go work on this TV show called The Tracy Ullman Show in Los Angeles. Um, they're looking for a PA at Gracie Films, which was Jim Brooks's company. Right. And I was like, okay, I'm there. I mean, I'll, I'll do whatever I need to do to stay in, in the film business. Uh, so I went and worked for Jim. And I read scripts. I got lunches. Uh, I assisted with The Simpsons, Broadcast News, uh, and The Tracy Ullman Show. And that's where I met Cameron. I read Say Anything. I met Cameron Crowe there. And I put the script down, and I was like, oh, my gosh. I can't believe what I just read. I absolutely loved the script. And wow, okay. I heard that he was going to direct it. They, they couldn't find someone. Jim couldn't find someone that he really wanted to direct a film except for Cameron. And so it was Cameron's first job directing. I put the script down. I walked across the Fox lot to the writer's building. I knocked on Cameron's door and I said, hi, my name's Clay Griffith. You don't know who I am, but I would love to be your assistant. On I worked on two movies so I could help you out a little bit. I know this is your first film. And he just looked at me and goes, well, all right, man, that's cool. <laughs> it, my voice sounded like it was coming from another planet because I was like, I never do stuff like that. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so the funny thing is, though, uh, there was another production assistant at Gracie Films who had been there longer, so they were going to give that job to him. And at the same time, the designer that gave me my first set decorator's credit, David Chapman, called me, and he goes, I've got a movie. Uh, I would love you to come and do it. It's called Mystic Pizza. Or, or was it Grumpy Old Man? I can't remember which one it was. But um, I decided to go ahead and do it because I didn't want to be... Uh, in production. I wanted to go back to the art department. So I went and had an exit interview with Jim. And he was so great. He was such a good guy. And he goes, hey, man, you got to do what you got to do. But anytime you want to come back, we'll have you come back. Anything you want to do, you got to do what you, you're meant to do. He was a great mentor. Uh, so I left. And I went and did Grumpy Old Men or Mystic Pizza. I just can't remember which one it was. And about three quarters of the way through the shoot, I got an email from James Brooks's assistant saying, you've got the job with Cameron if you want to come back and do that. So as soon as I was done with the film, I came back to Gracie Films and I became Cameron's assistant on the first film he directed. And from that point on, it was a relationship that went on, on to every film he's done except for Vanilla Sky. Uh, I was the, now this is real, these are really tough decisions that you're making. You know, do you want to be a part of cultural history? Do you want to work with Cameron Crowe? Or do you want to work with Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau? I mean, how do you? Uh, I, I think. How do you balance that out? Yeah, it, it, it's it's weird. I think when you're really young and you just you go with your spirit, and that's what I did. Love it. Uh, because you know what? I came from a world where no meant no. I didn't think they would call me and say, "Oh, well, we changed our mind." <laughs> oh, but they did. So I came back, and that's sort of how that started. And worked for Cameron as a decorator on, uh, you, you listed them, Jerry Maguire uh, uh, singles. Uh, and then 
I think I was, you know, mixing in other films at the time. I worked on As Good As It Gets as the decorator with uh, Jim, who was wonderful director to watch work because it's all about the script, the story, and blocking the scene. And I learned so much from him uh, doing that. It was incredible. And some, and some of these films, I know it's set to hear more on set, but were you like, were these directors that allowed a lot of, I've talked to some art department people where sometimes they're more in the office or sometimes they're more prep. So in some of these films, were you more set? I mean, were you getting to sit there while Cuba said, show me the money? Oh yeah, that's a fun, I, I was walking across the Sony lot and you could hear him yelling it in his phone, in his car outside the studio doors because Tom was inside where they were filming Tom on the other end of the, the scene. <laughs> and you could hear this guy wow. go, show me the money! Show me the money, Jerry! <laughs> and I was like, what the hell is going on? It was, is, I mean, it was Cuba. What's, I mean, obviously, you're not aware that you're impacting the zeitgeist and the cultural. I mean, in that moment, right? You have no idea that that's going to become part of the lexicon, right? You, you, ne you never know. Uh, when you read a script, I literally will take a script based on the story if it, like, says something to me. And obviously, I've known Cameron for a while at this point, and when I read Jerry Maguire, you just fell in love with it. But, uh, you know, we, we had no idea that would happen. Um, right. You know, you hope for the best, but you never think it's going to be something that cultural. Uh, kind of like when I did Seven, I remember reading the script and I could barely move out of my chair after I read it, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> are we going to do oh. this? Uh, but right. you know, David Fincher at the, at the helm pulled that one off. Uh, okay. Well, cause I'm, I'm seeing these films when I'm in my teens mm -hmm. and I actually saw Jerry Maguire on my 18th birthday. Wow. And, and I, yeah. And I just remember walking out being like, wow, you can keep your ethics. Yes. And I knew right? I wanted to go into film, but I was just like, wow, you don't have to lie. Like what grandma's saying, like I'm seeing, I'm seeing on the screen what grandma talks about. Like, and how cool is that? Like a guy who's willing to lose everything. Not that I'm an advocate of that, but right. losing everything just to still stay who you are. Wow. Yeah. That's, that gives me goosebumps. Yeah. So it, those are the kind of little things that will drive me towards the design of, of, a, of a film. Is just one little kernel of truth that I can run with and find something with it, and then I sort of becomes a visual sort of form in my head. It's hard to explain. Well, I, well you guys can check out uh, claygriffith.com. I was really amazed by your your drawing. You said you did photography. How does that transfer into sketching, or do you have a sketch artist, or how does that work? I, I actually, uh, I yeah. I, I used to be able to draw when I was in college, but I don't really draw anymore. So we usually hire illustrators uh, to do that. I, I will usually sketch something loosely on a notebook and then take it to the illustrator or to a set designer. And we, we start to sort of rough it out together. Okay. And then sort of, you know, I mean, Cameron and I, every film, we spend hours in a room going through photographs and color. And just, just it's just him and I in a room talking about whatever comes up in each scene. And... Uh, you know, I'll use photographers that I studied in college or artists like Edward Hopper uh, for color palettes. And, you know, I'll, I'll sort of reach for anything that, that I can apply to it. Do, do you have one of his, uh, I mean, or any film where you've had the greatest challenge to come up with your conceptual drawings? Uh, yes, a couple. Uh, one mainly uh, was a film called We Bought a Zoo. Oh, okay. That I did with Cameron. And you know, I loved the script. Uh, it was adapted from a, a, a novel, I believe. Uh, it was sort of a true story as well. Benjamin Mee was actually a real person who 
adopted a zoo in England, uh, but we sort of transferred the story to California. And I remember finding the location and Cameron said, you know, I want you to go out and scout for these locations, but play Neil Young out on the weekend while you're doing it. Because when you find the right spot and that song works, that's where we're going to shoot the movie. Oh. <laughs> so that's what I did. <laughs> and, and we ended up in Thousand Oaks uh, at a place called Greenfield Ranch. Uh, beautiful place. Um, we ended up building the entire house. We were never on a soundstage on that film. We were on location the entire time. We built the house interior and exterior. And then about a mile down the road, we built the zoo. There was no zoo there. It was just a bunch of rattlesnakes in the woods and the back of the Santa Monica Mountains. And I remember standing there one day going, what have I gotten myself into? I don't know how to build a damn zoo. Right. <laughs> I was like, how am I going to do this? Right. <laughs> and it was like a moment of panic. And I was just like, okay, okay, calm down. I can do it. I can do it. So I just went back to the drawing board and started looking at all kinds of zoos. And I tell you, research... Research and reference is the truth of design, in my opinion. It's like if you're, you, you got to base it off of something that's real. Um, otherwise, it just doesn't, it doesn't sing properly on screen, in my opinion. Well, because you're, I mean, we bought a zoo and you're working with Rodrigo Prieto, who. Ah, love him. Uh, yeah, of course, the most, you know, people are going to know him the most from uh, Wolf of Wall Street and uh, Scorsese's uh, The Irishman and all that. But he's been around so long. I've been a fan of his since 2002 when I saw 25th Hour. Yeah, he, he's a great movie. talent. Yeah, and he's and what a nice guy, too. I mean, what was his take on that we've never bought built a zoo? I mean, if, is there something you could say about what the, how, what was that? You guys getting together in the huddle, what was that like? You know, it's funny. He came on, we, we had a, a weird start on that film. We'd started uh, earlier, like I think eight weeks earlier than when we actually started the second time. Because when Cameron secured Matt Damon, he was still working on True Grit. So we had to stop production, pre-production, and push back a little bit. And Faden Michael was actually the first DP on the show. And when we pushed, Oh, he's awesome. Yeah, Faden's great. When we pushed back, um, Faden, it, he couldn't make his window work. He was going on to another film. So we lost Faden and gained Rodrigo. Uh, the design had already started at that point. Um, so... Rodrigo didn't have a lot of uh, input other than the normal stuff we, we do with DPs about lighting and windows and stuff like that. That was lo one location, right? It was all pretty, everything was at one location except for, uh, I think there was three separate locations around LA. One was at the LA Times because Matt Damon's character was a reporter. Oh, okay. So other than the house and the zoo, right? Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. So, but I had, I had set up the zoo so that... Uh, Rodrigo could shoot to the east in the morning and have backlight. And then at midday, when the sun was high, he could shoot in the middle of the zoo. And then in the afternoon, he could shoot the other side of the zoo to the west. Uh, so he would always have backlight. And he came up to me and he goes, finally, this production designer, I can't believe you've done this for me. I thank you so much. Thank you so much. I can shoot wherever I want at almost any time of day. And I was like, yes. I know that's smart. <laughs> it worked. <laughs> That's brilliant. I love it. Speaking of cinematographers, this brings me to uh, John Toll. Mr. John Toll. You guys did Almost Famous. Uh, you had mentioned that you weren't on Vanilla Sky, and then you do Elizabeth Town. Uh, but yep. for Almost Famous, speak. This is the. I loved that I learned this like months ago randomly. The Tempe scene, which is just supposed to be another hotel that they come to, I think the King's Motor Lodge or something. Mm hmm. 
I read somewhere that was the Roosevelt Hotel. It was. Kudos to you. So tell me about that. You're turning, I mean, that is such a known lobby. Yeah. And you're having to make it Tempe. We basically just stripped it down. Uh, we took everything out of it, gave it the sort of the, the 70s look. And my design theory on that show was to get rid of all the clutter of advertising and every, everything else that we now see day to day. Because the 70s were kind of a clean look. You know, there wasn't a thousand billboards. There wasn't a thousand television monitors. There was no cell phones and all that kind of stuff. So we just sort of stripped down anything that was, you know, other than a, a telephone that had a push button dial on it um, and sort of left it like that. I know it sounds kind of weird oh. to say this, but it, it was sort of a, we were trying to create negative space by getting rid of advertising. Wow. So you basically were just, you're in the scene instead of like staring at all this other stuff. Or I, or I like to call it visual garbage. <laughs> visual garbage. Oh, because I'm thinking about that when I was watching it last night. That's that really, make, I mean, I wasn't, obviously since I was born in 79, I wasn't thinking about what was the difference in advertising. Or I mean, other than like that great line when Billy Crudup says, I grew up with that lampshade. Like, yeah. <laughs> That's a good I, scene. Yeah, I, <laughs> Everybody's favorite scene. Yeah. Um, yeah, I want to see you your snake. <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> it's going to be 1984. Think about that. Exactly. I, I really love that that was um, speaking to the way all of you guys are about uh, being real. Yeah. And that kind of subtext. That's yeah. what I like the most about that scene was just some people who wanted to let him have beer. Real Topeka, Do, man. We're real yeah, Topeka. <laughs> Do acid. Jump off the roof. I, uh, I was born in 1963, so I was probably, I think, 10 or 11 at the time in, in the you know, early 70s. Uh, so I remember it a lot. You know, Cameron has always said that Almost Famous was a love letter to music. Um, and I, I totally agree because I actually at one point grew up in the Virgin Islands. Uh, we moved there in 1972 and all we had was music. There was no TVs. There was no... Uh, there's there's really nothing except books and music, and I it was almost famous to me was a memory of that time where it was just really pure music and uh, like I said there wasn't a lot of visual clutter it was just sort of you were in the moment all the time and I feel like we oh. did that on that movie. Oh, I, I I think you guys pulled that off perfectly. I think there's I think it's odd that it resonates. I almost call it like the 50-50 of people that just love the movie, people that passed on it, and then it's usually kind of like they don't have that um, mentality or attitude. Right. Where they're just chill. Um, so this, okay, I, was, I, I love that you said you grew up there and were with music because one of my questions was going to be how do you design to music? I mean, you have the photos, you have the encyclopedic knowledge of the guy who was there. Yeah. But how do you how do you do that as a designer? It's sort of like you get in a groove. Um, a lot of it happens to me sometimes uh, in prep or just somehow music will come into. I mean, Cameron Crowe scripts always have musical cues, so that's it's pretty easy on those. But sometimes when you're scouting on location and you're by yourself in a car with a location manager, you you start playing like an album you haven't heard in a while, and then you play it for like eight weeks straight. <laughs> <laughs> and it just sort of gets in your head. I don't know how to explain that, but um, it also depends on the film. You know, it was, I remember when I was doing Seven, I listened to a lot of Soundgarden and Pearl Jam at the time. Uh, 
which is interesting because Trent Reznor did the score later on, which I had no idea that he was going to be doing that. Uh, but it was just sort of, um, I don't know. It's one of those things as an artist, you just sort of follow your, your muse that way. Now, do you, do you get, I've heard that he does it with a cast that'll give people mixtapes. Does everybody that's department heads get those or it's just kind of different because you guys are close buddies or how does that work? Uh, well, Cameron actually plays music on the set. He'll play a track of music um, right before they do the, shoot the scene so that everyone on the set gets it. Uh, there's a scene in Almost Famous where William gets in, uh, he goes to get in a cab and uh, Jan Wenner's sitting inside of it. Uh, he wasn't playing Jan Wenner, but he was doing a cameo. And when William st doesn't get in the cab and the, we were on a, the camera was on a big boom crane and we boomed up and Cameron was on the sidewalk and he started playing Simon and Garfunkel's Last Little Boy in New York. Oh, okay. Oh, I, smart. Okay. I, is that the name? I, I'm getting the sound, sound, the song wrong. But I remember the entire crew was like almost in tears because it was such a moment. And Cameron has a way of doing that. So it brings the entire crew together and the cast and literally anybody who's standing watching, <laughs> walking by, they just stop what they're doing. It's like, oh, we're having a moment. <laughs> I love it. It's great. It's it's so much fun to do that. Well, that shot, I always took it as a subtext, and I guess this is my, might be my own thing, but that the great scene he plays Mona Lisa and Mad Hatters. Oh, God, I love that scene. I love that song so much. Yeah. Um, I used to think the only musician was Elton John, because it's all my dad played. Yeah. <laughs> and then I heard my second band, and I was like, well, oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Um, so he... Uh, when he, you know, the girl runs out, he runs after, then there's this brilliant, you know, you know, the shot, the shot looks all the way down the street. And I always took it as not in a bad way, but you're never going to stop running after them. Right. And maybe I was looking too deep into that, but I just always thought this is brilliant. So anyway, so I, 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 I don't think one. you're looking too deep into it. Uh, I think that the, what Cameron does as a writer and, uh, and John Toll as a, as a cinematographer and then them coming together and Cameron directing it is that, they left the door open for people to have their emotions about what they were seeing. Well, well, you know, that scene too, like I, I understand I'm not saying the executives, the marketing or whatever, but whenever I've heard my female friends criticize the way Billy Crudup just gets rid of her, I always tell them, well, in the director's cut, they let her know before and they throw that little party for her. Yeah. And they make it clear. So the move, the the final cut. I'm just saying the way they did it was very. I thought, I felt kind of it was like manipulative because it was like no, no, no. They let her know. She showed up. Yeah, she's abandoned. And then she's yeah. <laughs> and, and that's the way it was up. back then. Right. Okay. Right. Well, yeah. Okay. Because there's no way to communicate, right? People just show. Oh my god, I never think that. Yeah. No yeah. text. No nope, email. No, none of that stuff. <laughs> okay. So of course, last thing on this list would be the bus. Oh, the bus, Doris. Yes, the bus, Doris. Oh, this is a good story. Uh, I'm glad you asked this because um, the bus was another thing that I was really nervous about as a designer because it's like, where are we going to find this bus from the 70s? And we're shooting this movie in, uh, I think it was 1999 or 2000. Like, I can't remember what year it was, actually. Um, and we needed two of them also. We needed one for the interior and we needed one to shoot the exterior. So that was even doubly hard. I was like, oh, great. Now i got to find two buses that look the same. <laughs> so uh, we found the two buses. I was on a location scout with uh, the location manager, uh, Jim, Jim McCabe. And we were passing an alley and I saw a bus, 
I saw two buses down the alley and they both were like covered up in canvas. Uh, they were basically almost inoperable, but luckily they were operable and we, we found our bus, we fell in love with it. And Cameron said to me, he goes, you know what, man? You gotta make the inside of that bus look like the album cover, the back part of the album cover of Neil Young's, uh, I think it was, what was the name of that album? It was not Harvest, it was the one after it. All right, the Neil Young album is called After the Gold Rush. Regardless, it was a picture of Neil Young's jeans that were tattered and worn. And he goes, the bus has got to have that kind of poetic love of Neil Young's jeans that are full of patches and tears and holes. <laughs> and I was like, yes! And I, I, that was like, all you need is to give me a little spark and I will run with it. <laughs> so oh I worked with the illustrator and the decorator. We were all in the same room. We were having fun and doing it. And we finally got this design down and it, it worked. It was an absolute blast to do. <laughs> I love it. It's supposed to be. Yeah. Because I, I, I heard on the audio commentary years ago where John Toll said he built um, the camera track. Yep, that was cool. Yeah, uh, it, it was I, in the center of the ceiling so the camera could literally float down the center of the bus. It was a great, great move. Well, I, I love that. I It's one of those things where I almost wish I didn't hear because every time I see the rest of the track, I'm like, that's not the bus. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's so, but what, I mean, I guess there'd be no other way to get those shots. This is advertising content. Aloha, here talking pictures with Paul Booth. We want to thank you and let you know that all October episodes are brought to you by the party game, Get Crude. Get Crude is get your crew together. You're the producer. You need an actor and a director. You draw cards. You got to make sure that there's not flash floods. Maybe your sets will be destroyed. Maybe you'll get seasick. Heck, there could even be a writer's strike. Man, do we know all the stuff that goes crazy in the film business. This game is for ages 13 and above. Best with three to eight players. For all you want to know about the game, getcrude.com go to g-e-t-c-r-e-w-d.com that's right paul you can buy the board game get crude at getcrude.com today now back to our podcast talking pictures with paul booth and that's what i call advertising content now th this would be just anything this story you have about your first time as a designer, anything you would love to say? Uh, it was, uh, I was petrified at first. I was petrified because I had been decorating for 14 years at that point, And I really wanted to uh, jump up to designing because I knew I could do it. Um, and I started to have a lot of directors ask me as a decorator, well, what do you think of these set walls? What do you think of this? What do you think of that? And uh, Cameron, you know, said to me, he goes, when the time's right, I'm going to give you a design job. And th that time was almost famous. Uh, wow. So I was ready mentally to do it. I wasn't, uh, I probably didn't have all the weapons in my arsenal that I have now and learning how to deal with production and everything else, budgets and all that kind of stuff. I, I mean, I had a clue, but uh, running an entire art department was uh, a little frightening at first. Um. And I think at that time period, there was a lot of people jumping on the Art Directors Guild saying they were art directors, but they weren't really. And this was a lot of uh, like music videos and stuff like that was going on. So the Art Directors Guild was trying to like stop this influx of people they felt weren't really qualified to be designers. And unfortunately, I got caught in that crossfire. Um, uh, I won't name the head of the guild at the time, but we had several conversations and I said, look, man, my whole family's been in show business. I'm not going away. 
I'm I'm going to go straight forward. I'm not going to be a flash in the pan here. So it's like I'd really appreciate it if I could retain the title of production design, but they they just didn't want to go there. Even though the production called me the production designer, it was just, you know, it's one of those things that you just you have to deal with. So I dealt with it and moved on, but uh you know, it hurt at first, but I, I got past it. <laughs> well, I, I learned the hard way. <laughs> I, I, I well, I was the production designer. And the other two people were my art directors, and they were great. Clayton Hartley and Ginny Randolph were fantastic. Uh, I couldn't have done it without them. And, you know, all this happened... In, in post-production. They literally told me this while I was designing another film. So I was like, you know, I'm already on the road to being a designer now, which right. that same guild let me design my next film. So it was just a matter of semantics, really. Right, okay. So you didn't have to have your Drew Baylor moment, which dumb, trying to be sly there, as we <laughs> take a look at Elizabeth Town. Yeah. Um, <laughs> again, John Toll, I've always, the thing that's always stuck out for me with this movie I, I saw it right when I got back from a road trip. So when it got to the road trip scene, I was just like, oh, this is so awesome. So I was a week out of the just, you have 200 CDs. And then that point when you're in the middle of Missouri and you're like, God, we've listened to the Paul Butterfield blues band right. too many times. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, I'm not in the mood for BB at six in the morning. Right. And so Play I Play some just, Lou Reed. <laughs> I, I, I just, so uh, the, the road trip, uh, what, I mean, what was that like to scout? I mean, did, did Cameron Crowe have such specific places because he's been all over the road? Or how did that work with your guys' communication? He, he did have uh, specific places. of I, A lot of them, I can't remember from his own experience of just driving across the country, but uh, the idea that this girl would send Drew on this, this sort of iconic journey to iconic odd places was just something he couldn't, it was too much fun to play with. So basically, we 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 uh, hired a location scout to go and look for these places because uh, Cameron, you know, did his reference and research, and they actually did exist. And so we sort of like there was a lot more of them at first. So we sort of, you know, uh, cut it down to select pieces that worked and looked great. So we were looking at photographs that were being sent all the time, uh, and then we did sort of a I went and scouted it with the location manager myself uh, to see if they would all work because. As a designer, if you can't find out a place to park all the trucks and figure out how all this stuff is going to, how the circus is going to move, then you might as well not try and lock that location. I learned that pretty early on, and it's always been a help to do that because you don't want to go to a director and show them something and then realize, oh, well, <laughs> we can't, the crew parking's 20 miles away. It just doesn't work like that. <laughs> so what we did is we did a reduced crew. Uh, when we finished shooting in Louisville, Kentucky, we did a, a, a road unit crew. So it was about 10 people and they went with the car and we shot from town to town to town. I actually moved back to LA at that point uh, and I didn't go on that shooting journey of the road trip uh, because we were prepping the sets in LA but I needed to make sure that they were all ready to go when they landed. Oh, okay. So that was, so that was, uh, I mean, I know stuff's never shot in order but that was it feels so perfect where it comes. So yeah, yeah. to conjure all that up and know that it wasn't in the, at least towards the end of the shoot is interesting. Um, I, I have to say one of my favorite things about that movie is the last looks. 
Yeah. <laughs> I think that forever screwed me up of just being like, are you being an asshole right now? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not going to reference Cameron Crowe and Elizabethtown, but, um, and of course, perfect use of Tom Petty. Huh. Well, it sounds like, I mean, it sounds like you're well-trained. I mean, that really is your filmography is all over the uh, spectrum. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, Seven in Elizabethtown or um, Sleepless in Seattle. I remember that was the first movie where I, I, do, I could not understand why I liked a movie without action. Right. I was like 13. And mm -hmm. I was just like, I really want to go back and see that, but nobody died. <laughs> that was like the year of like the fugitive and the fur oh yeah that's right before you know it's like this explosion of just everybody's got to be killed or and it's just anyways. well nor nor efron is so good with uh crafting a romantic comedy and about relationships that it, it just it was a tough film to work on i can't remember why um there weren't a lot of film companies that had shot in seattle yet and just getting you know, props and set deck and all that stuff there and, and finding places to shoot in was not easy. Uh, but the film came off as a, a little piece of magic for sure. Well, and again, you're, there's that thing we were talking about where you're, you do something and it's just iconic. Yeah. I mean, it's just enters the world. And um, I mean, that, that one's a little bit easier to watch for me when Harry met Sally I cannot handle anymore. <laughs> yeah, no, I can't. It feels a little forced, but I mean, it's still a good film, but it's, there was something magical and I, it was definitely the actors and the script. Uh, and Nora was at the top of her game for sure. Oh, she's so brilliant. Yeah. If you're cool, I would love to know about, I love radio. Won't go too much into it, but I would love to know if like has a designer. I mean, cause that's just, again, it's just such a, heartwarming, tear-jerking movie. Yeah, another, another great story, uh, a real story about a real person. Uh, that's why we shot in South Carolina, because I believe he actually lived in Columbia. Um, and we shot in a little town called Walterboro, South Carolina. We scouted Atlanta. We scouted Wilmington, uh, North Carolina. And we, when we finally got here, I think it was the last day of scouting, uh, myself and Herb Gaines, who was the line producer at the time, we, we rolled into this little town called Walter, Walterboro, uh, South Carolina, and it literally looked like they rolled the sidewalks up at night. Uh, half the, the main street was about two blocks long. There was only maybe 40% of the businesses were open. So Herb and I looked at each other. We're like, uh-oh, I think we found it. It looks like a back lot that we can actually come in here. And it, it was almost untouched by time because I think radio took place in the 70s late 70s, something like that. Uh, so basically, we, we took over the town. We, we put our production offices uh, in the town, put the art department in the town, and we basically lived there and shot the entire movie there. And did, you, uh, it was a great, did you meet radio? Yes, we did. Oh, awesome. It was totally awesome. It was, it was a great, great story. Ed Harris was fantastic in it. Um, yeah, it was just a really, it was one of those films where you enjoyed going to work every day because you were telling somebody's story. Uh, and someone who made an impact on a lot of people's lives, and and everyone there knew who he was. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah, so <laughs> he was kind of legendary. I love it. Do, do you have a? I mean, it seems like you've done a number of films that were uh, either about somebody or your work with Cameron Crowe, the autobiographical stuff. Do you do you kind of have a preference, or is it just kind of whatever comes to you? Or ah. Uh, 
Yeah, you know, yes, I probably do. I love real stories about real people. I also love things that are slightly in period, like from when I was growing up, that it's something I can draw on a lot. Um, as a designer, you can also draw on, draw off of other things, not just your own past. But uh, I think, you know, like to me, Seven was almost like biographical uh, because of all the, you know, when you grow up hearing about serial killers and all that stuff happened during your lifetime. Uh, you know, you could say that John Doe was many different people in one person. So I sort of drew off of all those people. Oh, that's interesting. Wow. In a weird way. I mean, my mind works in weird ways. So <laughs> No, that's really it. That's a great point. I yeah. mean, that is the... I remember Richard Ramirez, the nice oh, God. when I was a little kid. And was... Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Like, you put all that stuff in that you remember about, and you're like, who is this guy John Doe? You know, I mean, who is he? And the great thing about Seven is that David Fincher came up to us and said, look, we don't want it. This is not L.A. We're not Detroit. We're not. We are a town that no one is in. We're a metropolis. We're a city. And we are we have no name. So that helped part of the film in a huge way of, of it. Everyone could relate to it, that it could be anywhere. That is. Yeah. You know, I was going to say, I was thinking about that. I was like, you know, what? that's not a city. Yeah. I was thinking about this. I was like, oh, man, I can't watch it again. Just it's like a bad dream. <laughs> yeah, right. I, mean, I would love to know about roadies. Um, I love this show, and I happened to see it, like, right after I'd come back from Kentucky for the first time. And I'd been on a trip to Denver, and I lived in Vancouver for film school, and I loved the forum. So I was just like, this is so cool. The cities are, like, where I just was. So... I read that it was mostly shot in one arena. Was or did you guys get to skip around? Or? I, I built that arena on stage. Um, I what I did was I built uh, the first two levels of an arena, and I built the back of the stage and all the hallways. Uh, we sort of based it on the forum because that's where wow. the roadies live is behind the scenes. So right. we were able to go out when the company went out to shoot one of the different arenas around L.A. Uh, and we were everywhere from. Orange County to Northern LA, uh, just wherever we could find an arena that we could schedule ourselves into. We would go shoot the performance stuff there and, and other, other elements. And then while they were out, I would transform the back of the stage to match that arena. I don't know if that makes wow. sense. So it was kind of, no, it, was a, yeah. it was a big Rubik's cube and a jigsaw puzzle. I was exhausted at the end of that show. Uh, it was just you built an arena. Wow. Yeah, it was fun though. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean that's wow. And the idea yeah. is, if we shot off the stage, we would just put up green screen and we could do plate shots at each arena and drop them in. So, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of hard work though. It was everybody was exhausted at the end of that because when you do episodic, it is relentless. I found out. Right. And not sure I want to do episodic again. <laughs> I'm really, so, so... I'm a feature guy. <laughs> So there was a subtext of he wanted you guys to feel like roadies. Yeah. And we shot we shot the pilot in Vancouver at the old P&E arena, I think it was called. Oh, yeah. There's a small arena at the end of East yeah, Band. Because, okay. because it, it just felt like, it, as, as Cameron always said, it needs to feel poetic and it's got to have history. And we were like, okay, what about this place? And he's like, yes, let's do it. <laughs> yeah, because I was going to say, you're, with the way arenas change every 18 months and change titles and yeah this one had not changed and okay so then the end of the 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 finale was that actually the forum or was that your built arena for the for when it's not obviously like the walls with everyone that played and the outside and 
The performance part was in our real arena on stage, and uh, some of the we shot a bit of it at the forum. I think there's a big like dinner scene with lights. Uh, we shot some of it at the forum there, and sort of just sort of edited the two elements together. But I tell you, I was so excited to see Jackson Brown like 20 feet in front of me playing the loadout. I was like, oh my god, <laughs> it's happening! <laughs> I was going to say that for me was Gary Clark Jr. I was just like, it would be cool to be a PA just sitting here. Oh, there's quiet. so many goosebumps going on that night. <laughs> well, I, you know, I'm just like obsessed with the forum because it's just the forum. It's great. I like, it's got history. Yeah, the history. I took a friend of mine there to see Elton on the um, farewell tour. And my friend actually is 75. He had not ever seen Elton. Oh, wow. Yeah, and he just, I, I was like, you? I was like, did you take too much acid and forget he was in town? <laughs> what was your thing? And he just, literally, it was just like, I was always out of town or somebody was sick. So I was lucky that I got to go there with somebody who waited 50 years. Wow. Yeah, so I was just like, okay, this is appreciating a show. That's great. <laughs> That's totally yeah, great. So, yeah, so um, with that, we'll go into our last uh, questions. These are just to kind of, learn a little bit about your personality and of course there either are questions and nothing you have to answer sure all right so you're gonna be stuck on a two-hour road trip you only get to bring one cd hank or merle hank jr or merle uh merle although i do like hank jr <laughs> okay I was, I was thinking about that i was like it really depends on the day and yeah it does depend uh, on the day but I, I would go with merle if it's going to be a two-hour road trip Okay. Um, Swinging Doors, My Life was that song for a little while. It's good. Nice. I I tell people, then they're like, that didn't sound like, I'm like, I didn't say it was a fun life. I said it was life. Yeah. Um, Okay. So set or location? Huh. Uh, How about I'd like to build a set on location? (laughs) (laughs) No, uh, set or location. Well, you know, it's different. Um, Yeah. That's a hard one to answer. I like them both because it's what I do. So uh, a location brings a lot. Now, if you're talking about an exterior location, yeah, location. Um, yeah, I'd say location. Okay. Why not? Okay. Well, I mean, because now that you're was, seeing I my mean, personality. I'm, I'm dual. Yeah, <laughs> my mother Everything. used to say I was a chameleon. <laughs> no, that's great. I mean, because that, that was something that I I crafted that question out of like the uh, Dolomite Hotel, um, which I just thought was superb. Uh, of course, Dolomite is my name. We didn't have time to get into, but that is the one that um, has would be the most, um, not known, but it would be one of the most uh, popular of the last few years. Yeah. Um, okay, let's see. I, I will yeah. say about Dolomite, and I called the director after I saw it, and I was invited to the Toronto Film Festival when it premiered and saw it with a live audience. And I was like, man, Craig, you hit, There's. it's very rare on a film that you hit every note perfectly. And he did it. He, well, Hustle and Flow, I'm, that, another, that was what I loved about that movie was like you're saying each note, and then I love that movie ends, and you're like, wait a minute, I don't know anything about being a pimp. Uh, or no, a right. <laughs> and a lot of people didn't know who Rudy Ray Moore was, but they, they do now. <laughs> right. Rat soup um, eating mother. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, plus, sure, I mean, I'm sorry, if I can slide this question in. Sure. There's, there's literally probably a hundred if we counted of, and I'm not saying you're saying best or most talented or anything with this question, but do you have like that, like Eric Steelberg said, it was kind of like Eddie Murphy walked in the room that like 
no matter what, the fandom is there. Like, do you have that actor that you were like, okay, this, I mean, okay, let's take Jack Nicholson out of the equation. Oh. Where, you know, somebody... <laughs> Sorry, <okay>. Jack. <laughs> I know. Wasn't my idea, Jack. <laughs> I know. <laughs> right as that came up, I was like, who's not going to say? So do you have somebody <laughs> besides Jack where it was just like, you were like, this is really cool that I'm going to meet so-and-so? Uh, I would say it was a film called Grumpy Old Men. Um, uh, and when Jack Lemon and Walter Matthau walked into the set I was decorating, I almost keeled over. Uh, I was like, these guys are legends, and they're bigger than life. Uh, Jack Lemon immediately walked over to the piano, which thankfully I had tuned that very day, and started playing Broadway tunes on it. Just sat down and just start get, played for like an hour. And Walter nice. was the funniest, saltiest dude you've ever met in your life. He kissed every girl that was on the set when he came in in the morning. <laughs> and in fact, Jack and Walter shared a uh, penthouse suite together during the filming. So they, they literally were the odd couple. Oh, my God. So I was just like, ah. And we also shot that at Paisley Park Studios uh, where I met Prince. So wow. the three of those guys in the same movie, it was kind of mind-blowing. <laughs> oh, my God. That's amazing. Yeah. It was I, fun. I know when I saw that movie, I told my grandmother that how smart that somebody put these two together. And she was like grandson oh you don't know the past <laughs> this is like, do you <laughs> i know she was like this is there go look up the fortune cookie oh yeah go, uh, look up a like, lot of stuff <laughs> i know she's like this is like their ninth or tenth movie i said oh okay. yeah and to see the like, classic and those guys were on their game man oh that's amazing um thank you for that certainly um grumpy old men such a classic and of course Bur you're getting burgess meredith and, yeah burge um, the burge my dad's starting to turn into the um that great scene. I think it's in the sequel when he's telling his uh, Jack Lemon something. And then he goes, "What were you saying?" And he's all, "Huh? Pop, <laughs> you were saying what?" Uh, and what? I'm like, "Oh no, you're Burgess Meredith now. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Eat your pound of bacon and drink your beer." There you go. Um, okay, so the 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 next one on the personality questions are: you're back in one of those old 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 movie theaters where there was only two screens, and there's a drama movie and an action movie. Which one are you going to? Drama. Okay, you have uh, you're stuck in L.A. airport, L.A.X., and you're gonna have a first class ticket to either Memphis or Seattle. Ooh, oh, <laughs> that's not a fair question. Uh, <laughs> Seattle. Seattle. Okay. I lived okay, there for so, a while, so. <laughs> oh, okay. So, okay. Bias. Okay. You have um, you're going out with the fam, and are they getting barbecue or are they getting pizza? Uh, barbecue. Yeah, my son would probably get pizza, but my wife and I would do barbecue. Okay, <laughs> let's say where you are, barbecue. Wow, that uh, when you're going to eat it and it falls off the bone before it gets to your mouth. Yeah, that was what I was when I was where you're at. I was like, whoa, where'd the meat go? <laughs> okay, <laughs> um, and the last one is, uh, and not movie specific because this would be very obvious, but. Uh, David Lean or Alfred Hitchcock? David Lean. David Lean, okay. Lawrence of Arabia. Respectfully. I, yeah, I know what I'm saying. Because <laughs> there's what, uh, Lawrence of Arabia, then Dr. Shivago, and then, I mean, when I saw Bridge on the River Quiet, I was like, is he going to fall? Is he going to fall? Is yeah, he going to fall? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's so funny that you that uh, you mentioned Lawrence of Arabia, because I, I was walking off the set at Folly Beach yesterday morning at like 
seven in the morning and Paul Bettany was going towards the set and he was talking to his writing partner, Dana Brown. He goes, you know, it's that scene from Lawrence of Arabia. What is that actor's name who's on the camel and it takes forever to come into the shot? What is his name? And I was, I, I heard him and I went, Omar Sharif. <laughs> he goes, all right. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> I love those kind of moments. <laughs> Oh, that mirage scene. Oh, God. It's like, uh, is he ever going to get there? (laughs) I know. And then to hear that it was no CGI. Yep. uh, I'll tell you a quick thing that I learned about that movie. The way that they controlled the light bouncing off the sand, they threw coffee on it, coffee grounds, so that they could get it so it wasn't too hot. And on on Elizabethtown in the big ballroom scene, John Toll was not happy with the carpet. He was like, it's too hot. God damn it. Why'd you get this this carpet? What are we going to do with it? And I said... Let's throw some coffee grounds on it. And he was like, what? I said, <laughs> Lawrence of Arabia, dude. That's what they did. And John Tull, I think, liked me from that point on. <laughs> I love it. Of course, of course, the set smelled like coffee, but I think people kind of liked it. I love it. That's a, I, No, that is, so, that is so great to hear. I mean, that's obviously Freebird and... Um, Freebird! Uh, I, I just love that... Maybe we'll go to, I know, the personal aspect of it, but I just love that episode of Roadies with uh, when Ron White's just telling his story on the bus. Oh, he's so good. Oh, yeah. my gosh. And, he's and so kudos good. kudos to you on the design of that. And The bus was tough. The, oh, okay. It was just, uh, you know, because we had budget constraints, so I couldn't build it the way I wanted to with camera portals and all that kind of stuff. But we did, you know, we figured out a way to shoot it, but it was, it was tough for the DP sometimes and tough for the actors and directors because... Cameron and I decided not to build the bus oversized because that's not what it was like being on a bus in the set and uh, when you're with a rock and roll band. You are in each other's face all the time. Interesting. Okay, so that's why everybody's with each other's wives and yep, <laughs> stealing each other's coke and yeah. <laughs> oh, that's really. I mean, I just was always thinking not the size of the band because I know. What I was when I rewatched Rodies, I was like, "There's, there's not. I don't. I didn't catch that there was saying how big the band was or how known or mm-hmm. they, they were, just, they were sort of in between being unknown and being really famous. That's sort of how we did it. And I will tell you one thing: there was a band that I listened to the entire time we made that film, and it was the Avid Brothers out of North Carolina because, to me, that's who our band was, and I sort of based the design off of the aesthetic of the Avid Brothers. Oh, okay. Check them out. Wow. You'll like them. They sound Avid sort of like uh, Chris Thiele and the, and the Punch Brothers, a little bit like that, sort of Americana country rock. Okay. Pro- progressive. How, how, do you guys, how do you guys stay on point? And I mean this in a good way. Uh, how do you mean? I'm sorry. Like like your, your, your knowledge of music and Cameron Crowe's knowledge of music and just everybody's. How do you guys get anything done? And I mean that in a nice way. Uh, I don't know. It's, uh, <laughs> I think it, it's, it inspires us. I think yeah, that, that's yeah. the, that's the big thing. It's, it's really a source of inspiration and communication. Um, yeah. because that's what, there's three great things in the world. One is making movies. One is listening to music. And the other one is, uh, I've always wanted to be a chef when I actually was going to go to hotel school, but I decided not to do it at the last minute. And it's creating a food, uh, meals because you're telling a story with each one. Oh, it's okay. a creation. So to me, music and filmmaking go hand in hand because they, they inspire each other. I definitely think they're like cousins. I, yeah, I for sure. And when I'm cooking, I listen to a lot of music in the kitchen. 
Oh, okay. I, I, I loved, I, what, one last thing about roadies, I, I loved that because if I could have been anything else, it would have been a roadie. <laughs> oh boy, that's a tough yeah. job, man. <laughs> well, it was funny because I, I had, and I'm not saying this to say who was on, but we were, we were doing a panel for a, a Dave Grohl documentary and I was talking with like his producer and his team and I said I wanted to be roadies and they were like, no, you don't. <laughs> no, you don't want to. My, <laughs> no, you don't. One of my best friends is uh, Kelly Curtis, uh, who, who used to be Pearl Jam's manager, and he was a roadie for Heart. Uh, in oh, fact, wow, okay. in fact, that's how Cameron and Nancy met each other was was sort of through Kelly. Uh, but oh. Kelly was like, man, I remember humping all that stuff and putting it, uh, you know, in the 100 degree heat in uh, Arizona and loading all the equipment into the bottom of a plane. He goes, man, you would lose weight quicker than you could you know whatever you drank the night before was gone because you just sweated out but he said it was it was tough oh i well you know i mean obviously not you know you're a part of it but uh that great tom petty quote on the that's on the beginning of roadies how they do everything and i just show up and play I mean, yeah I, that's where yeah that's where i was like okay i mean i loved after like 10 seconds i thought that was such a great show because i was like okay a tom petty quote cut to credits yeah, <laughs> I'm sold. I had fun on that on the pilot of that show because I got to go uh, in a in a we had our own bus and I had a Cameron asked me to go sort of direct and shoot the B camera stuff. Uh, so we we piggybacked onto Pearl Jam's tour that started in Memphis and then went to Detroit. So I had a camera person and a, a boom operator and we would go behind the scenes and watch all the roadies set everything up. And we would follow them on our bus, you know, follow their bus. And we got to really feel what it was like to be a roadie. And it's, wow. it is tough. It is very oh, tough. You go to a different town and there's different guys that you got to know about to get your equipment in and out. In Memphis, uh, the, the Pearl Jam roadies were not really happy with the local crew because they were talking on their phones. They weren't moving very fast. When they got to Detroit, that ground crew at the arena there, uh, I forgot what the name of the arena, it's where the Red Wings play. Uh, they were like, it was a different world. They had stuff out of the van up and good. It was, it was like total machine. It was, it was fantastic. Oh, okay. See, I, I didn't know that, uh, well, obviously I know there's probably union stuff. Where yeah. HC yeah. Has the, yeah. That's, know, that's the, their... the issue sometimes. Not, not in a bad uh -huh. way, but it just, so I think Memphis might've not been a union. I'm not sure. I can't remember what the issue was. Maybe they were just a little more green cause that, that stadium's new. So Phil would have come from before kind of unions and kind of just he's the old school og I oh mean, yeah that yeah totally okay. that's why he carries I, a gun i know <laughs> I, I my favorite lines when they wake him up and he says my body wakes up when it's needed <laughs> <laughs> i love that line because i'm not a morning person so i'm like right that is so great nobody's gonna say a word to me again because ron white said um so <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh, well, well, thank you again uh, for your time today. Oh, this and, is a blast, uh, Paul. I really appreciate it. No, but I, I really appreciate it because you know from uh, doing Aloha that it's just very mellow, very when things happen. Yeah. The Aloha spirit makes all things happen. So Totally. You guys can check out claygriffith.com. That's clay with an A and Griffith like Griffith. <laughs> all right. Well, you take care, man, and you have a wonderful, safe trip and shoot. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. And you take care as well. All right. Aloha. Well, aloha. All right, that's going to do it for us here at Talking Pictures with Paul Booth. We had a great time talking with Mr. Clay Griffith, production designer. 
Well, you know my motto, whether it's morning, afternoon, or evening, make sure and watch a good movie. Aloha. Thank you for listening to the Talking Pictures Podcast. Real conversation and movie-induced inspiration.